I taught at the University of Houston a class called Communications Law and Ethics for over 20 years. And a lot of the subject matter in Communications Law and Ethics was things like defamation law, First Amendment law, you know, all of these fights that we see over the First Amendment, our right to speak and to express ourselves, defamation, what we say. We just saw a lot of that with the Fox News uh, uh, lawsuit that happened. They, that, that type of law was in the news. And, um, and generally things like that. So between speaking and teaching, it took a lot of time. Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is a podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist uh, and longevity coach, also author of the triple award-winning book, Rejuvenating, the art and science of growing older with enthusiasm. I'm also a keynote and TEDx speaker. And uh, as listeners know that we have this daily, this weekly podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically and become better versions of yourself. And on a regular basis, we have guests who come from different perspectives to enable us to do so and maximize our ability to be the best versions of ourselves. And so it is with great pleasure that today I bring you uh, Tate Barkley, who is a Houston, Texas-based attorney, speaker, author, and educator. Uh, But wasn't always that way. For a long time, Tate carried the burden of shame for years stemming from poverty, addiction, and the struggle of being a closeted gay man. Uh, He struggled with alcohol addiction, and through uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, he found sobriety and now seeks to inspire others by sharing his transformative journey. Uh, In addition to his speaking, appearing on podcasts, and so on. Tate will have a new book coming out, uh, and I believe it's September. That is uh, it really a memoir, has a very interesting title that we'll have to get into and explore called Sunday Dinners, Moonshine, and Men. Um, pretty sure uh, that that's there's some meaning in that title it isn't just something you plucked out of the air so there is a little bit about it but first let's welcome uh tate pleasure to have you with us welcome to rejuvenating with dr ron kaiser ron thank you for having me here today it's a pleasure to be with you and it's particularly a pleasure to be on this podcast you know rejuvenating i'm really a fan of, of of your work and your mission here on this podcast. So it's, it's an honor to be here. And I thank you. Well, I'm glad that you can be a part of it and want to learn a little bit about you. Can you tell us a little more specifically about what you do on a daily basis now? Uh, I know you're an attorney, but there, there's lots of attorneys. Uh, do you have a mm-hmm. firm? Do you work for uh, a company? What kind of work do you do? And, and what do you do when you're not attorneying? Sure, you bet. Well, being an attorney takes up a lot of time. At least it at least it does for me. But I'm a, I'm, I'm a founding partner of a law firm, Bain and Barkley, and I, I, I um, began the firm with my partner Steve Bain back in 
2002, I guess we're at uh, 21, 22 years now. And we're a civil litigation firm. We do a great deal of work um, in civil litigation. It can, for me, a lot of my work is what we call fiduciary uh, litigation, where, you know, it involves when people have an obligation to someone else where they're suing each other. I get involved in a lot of tort work, which a tort's like a legal wrong we commit against one another. That can include personal injury. It can include defamation, slander, and a lot of things like that. And the work I did in sort of defamation and slander uh, also took me to teaching at the University of Houston. And I taught at the University of Houston a class called Communications Law and Ethics for over 20 years. And a lot of the subject matter in communications law and ethics was things like defamation law, First Amendment law, you know, all of these fights that we see over the First Amendment and our right to speak and to express ourselves. Defamation, what we say, we just saw a lot of that with the Fox News um, uh, lawsuit that happened. They, that, that type of law was in the news and, um, and generally things like that. So between speaking and teaching, it took a lot of time. But also, um, I, I am in recovery, and I've been sober for 24 years, and I'm active in AA, Wonderful. Alcoholics Anonymous. And I also am the president of, of the board of directors for the Avenue Community Development Corporation. And uh, we dedicate ourselves to um, building affordable, building and maintaining affordable housing for people inside Houston. So, so, and after all that, I'm usually pretty tired. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's definitely. And I true. should say, I don't want to get in trouble either. I should say that I'm happily married to my husband, Anson. And uh, we have been married for uh, since 2017, but been together since 2011. So he is truly the light of my life. Great. Great. Well, uh, as you describe this, it's uh, what, what you're doing now, that's, seems kind of a sharp contrast to some of the things I said in the introduction. Uh, sounds like your childhood would not have predicted that you'd be where you are at this point. Um, so I guess yeah. I'm wondering, um, I, I've really got two questions uh, and I don't know which is the right order to, to do it. So I'm gonna let you uh, uh, figure it out. But one is we'd like to know a little bit about about your childhood and uh you know just how how bad it was uh and also what has made you so resilient because again i i said people wouldn't necessarily have predicted it because not everybody who has a bad start has a good finish so you know and 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 i think that's it that that is true and and you know when i i was born in statesville north carolina um which is about 42, 45 miles north of Charlotte. And I was born there in 1965. Uh, and my father's family, my father's family is what we call, they were, they were farmers. They, they had a more, much more rural lifestyle. And then my mom's parents were what we call townsfolk. So they were in the townsfolks. But, but anyway, early on, uh, in my life, one of the things we talk about in my book, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine and Men, one of the highlights of my life early on was the time I spent with my grandmothers, particularly on Sundays, particularly when it's time to eat. I loved eating. And they would cook the best meals. And um, 
and and that was sort of my special time. But as I grew older, and uh, my when I was born, I my mom was married to a man that was not my father at the time. So in 1960 South, that created a dynamic to where the person that was legally my father was not my natural father. And after uh, when I was about five or six years old, my mom and my natural father actually came together. And I didn't call my natural father dad until about 10 or 11. Uh, that's when they finally told me the truth about who my dad was. Uh, after that, when we, that my mom and my natural father finally got together, his name's Tate, which is also my name. I, uh, uh, we moved to Florida. And my dad, Tate, he was always kind of chasing the dream. I kid with people, Ron, that my dad was a flim flam man. I don't know if a lot of people know what that is, but it's kind of like somebody always chasing the next thing that's going to get them rich. And my dad was convinced that he was going to get rich in Florida real estate. And um, the opposite happened. Uh, my mom and my younger sisters, I have three younger sisters, we eventually found ourselves with a dad that had abandoned us and living in a house with no electricity and no water and food quickly going away. Uh, had it not truly been for the kindness of our neighbors, we would not have survived during that time. You know, I, uh, my mom still kids with me. You know, during that time, my youngest sister, Brandy, she was born, um, and we used to chuckle that we were afraid she was going to be born a fried bologna sandwich because uh, it was so hot that summer and we had no electricity, and bologna was about all we ate. So uh, dad never did come back, and eventually we left. We had to call our kin people back in North Carolina to take us back. And though dad did eventually return it would be years before he was ever able to get a stable job. I mean, we lived without a phone until I was in ninth grade. And there were two occasions where we literally didn't have anything to eat. I go into a lot more detail in the book about that, but um, uh, that was kind of how, where, where it all started. And my dad, it, you know, my father was a person had, who had an irrepressible optimism and an irrepressible narcissism all in the same thing, you know? And um, uh, he, and, and when things didn't work out, sadly he fled and uh, just sort of left us to fend for ourselves. I think over time, sort of my journey, and I talk about this in the book, the memoir is really a, uh, it's a memoir about mine and my father's relationship. It, it's really, it took a lifetime for me to try to grow to forgive him for, for so much of that. And, uh, but one of the things we did share in common was that we were both, once I got older, we both loved to drink. And um, so we became drinking buddies. And that was the only, that's how our relationship healed, Ron, is we just got drunk together. And um, once I got sober, uh, that created a whole new set of challenges for him for us. So anyway, that's kind of how all of that started. But things turned around for us. You know, in 1977, I remember my dad came to us and he said, you know, my family name's Bub or Bubba. He said, Bub, we're moving to Houston. And um, so he says, it's booming in Houston. So we're going to move to Houston. And that's where 
anyone's dreams can come true. That's what dad said. So we moved to Houston and, and, and started to build a, a, a different kind of life out here in Texas. Is that too much or enough? Yeah, Ron, you yeah. tell me. Good. That's fine. I, I guess, uh, is Houston, is that what contributed to your resilience? Cause again, I, there's, uh, Somewhere along the line, you interrupted uh, yeah. the process and, and kind yeah. of changed things, I guess. I yeah, know. I did. And, and I say Houston is a part of that in that what happened to us when we were in Houston, when, you know, when we moved to Houston, and, and this is a bit of a story, when we moved to Houston, we moved into an apartment complex called Skyline South Apartment Complex, and I call it, it was like the Ellis Island of Houston. Everybody was from somewhere else. People were pouring into Houston to get work because it was booming. And um, I went to, I took a class in seventh grade. They made you in seventh grade take a class called public speaking. It was required. And I gave my first talk in front of other people. And my public speaking teacher, a lady by Miss Schimmel, said, you know, you're pretty good at this. You just need to do this and you need to do this. And she worked very hard with me to, to help me in public speaking. And when we moved to a... a in my eighth grade year, I took public speaking again, and that public speaking teacher invited the debate coach from the high school down to hear me speak in public speaking class in eighth grade. And after that class, her name was Miss Cope, and Miss Cope came to me, and she was the teacher for uh, the high school debate club, and she said, I think you would be a good debater, but I don't have time to really teach you. I want you to come debate with me come ninth grade when you go into ninth grade next year at Dobie High School. Can you go to Baylor debate camp in Baylor's, you know, University in Waco here in Texas? And I said, well, I don't know. My heart sort of fell to my feet, Ron, when she said, can you go to Baylor debate camp? Because I asked her, does it cost? And we never had any money, you know. So if it costed money, I, I just figured it's too bad for me. And she said, yeah, and it's kind of expensive. Well, she, Miss Morrow was my eighth grade speech teacher, gave me a note to take home and I gave it to my dad. And my dad, by that point in time, was working in the refineries. We had come to Texas. He had settled down a little bit and gotten a job in what I call, and you know, we call, I call it, I grew up in the refinery culture when we got here, because that's how a lot of working people make their money is here in the refineries on the, on the Gulf Coast. And, and anyway, dad read the note and we didn't have a phone. So we drove to the convenience store to use the payphone. And when he got back in the car, he said, Bob, he says, this lady wants you to go to this, what she calls debate camp at Baylor University. Do you want to go to this? And I said, yeah, dad, I do. I really think I could be good at it. They say I could be good at it. And um, a couple of weeks went by, nothing was said. Dad came to me and he says, I got a letter from the high school debate coach. She wants to talk to me. So he went and used the phone at the convenience store. And when he came back, he said, Bob, he says, these two women really want you to go to Baylor debate camp and it costs $375. I've saved $125 and you can have it to go to this school. 
And Miss Morrow and Miss Copeland, they're going to pay the rest. So I tear up. I'm sorry, Ron. I tear up when I think about it. I had two public school teachers, one a high school debate coach and one an eighth grade speech teacher, um, come out of pocket to send me to Baylor debate camp. And everything changed, began to, I began to see a way out whenever I got to this debate camp. Because when I got there, I was hanging, hanging out with other kids. Most were from Dallas and Houston and all of the state. Some were from other parts of the country. And they were so smart and they were so motivated. And when you get around smart, motivated people and they got a competitive edge about them, I never really had a whole lot of a competitive edge about it, but it kind of got me all worked up. And then... And, and I knew by the time I left that debate camp that I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up. And, and that sort of set me on a path of giving me a goal and an ambition of what I wanted to be. And, and, I, and I would say that's where the resilience began. It began with two educators literally coming out of pocket to send me to a debate camp to get me started. And, and there's, you know, over time, I had to struggle with a lot of other things, but, but I, I look at the education that I received over the years and, and through public schools and uh, along with my recovery from alcoholism being the two chief things of resiliency that, that, that I've experienced over life, over time. And then did you, uh, uh, were you actively alcoholic and achieving at the same time, or did was there a a, a time that you had to, uh, or that you hit bottom, or were were the alcoholism interfered with? What sounds like a very nice story. Yeah. Well, the answer to that both questions is yes. I mean, in that I had my first. I remember. I, I think I shared with you. I, I, we moved into this apartment complex in Houston called the you know, Skyline South Apartment Complex. And behind that apartment complex was a bayou. And I remember several of us guys, one of our, my friends, his name was Bruce, scored this uh, pack of, uh, it was called the, you know, the champagne beer, uh, Miller High Life, little seven ounce ponies. And I had never drank alcohol before. Yeah, it was the, and I was hesitant at first, but we were out by this bayou and there was a, a, a hanging out by, cause no one could see you. The parents couldn't see you out behind in, you know, down in the bayou and they run all over Houston. And so I, I took my first drink of alcohol and I didn't really like the taste, but you know, it was just seven ounces. I shot that back and I got a little bit of a buzz working. And by the time I had two more of those, Ron, I had I, I I felt like the world had been lifted off my shoulders. I had never felt such relief in my life, like I I I I I got from this buzz from this beer. You know, daily living then was there were seven of us packed into a small apartment. My dad was working a laborer job. There was very little money. The school I was at was had gang problems and everything else. You had to really pay attention. And it and I just felt suffocated. But what made me feel suffocated the most was is that I lived in a very masculine culture, but I knew, but I liked other guys. 
and I couldn't, and I was too afraid to do anything about it. I was afraid of being, you know, that F word. I was, if the word got out, you were that, you, it'd be a very miserable life. So drinking made all of that easier. So as time went on, you know, as I got into high school, I did, I drank on the weekends and that, and by my senior year, I was drinking a lot on the weekends. Once I was lucky, I was, I was successful in high school. Fortunately, I was class president twice, most likely to succeed. And, and I, I did very well debating and doing forensic speech events and, um, actually won some scholarship money, not for my grades necessarily, but for speaking competitions. Uh, and I, I managed to get into the University of Texas at Austin, which was a really good school. And then once I got to Texas, University of Texas, man, the drinking, my drinking really took off in college. And it's when I began drinking during the week and just not on weekends. Um, and I managed, you know, I had a lot of buddies. I drank a lot, but I managed to have a couple of buddies. Their name were Greg and Steve, but very responsible guys. that could sort of get me on track right when I needed to get on track for exams. So I managed to get out of college, but by the time I graduated college, I, I think, and I only know this from looking back, Ron, but I think I had sort of passed that, crossed that line to where my drinking wasn't recreational or social anymore. It was something that I reached to, to cope, you know, with, with daily living. I was anxious. I was anxious as a kid. I was anxious as an adult, had anxiety. And obviously, honestly, drinking just made me feel better. And it helped me cope. And uh, I was shy by nature. But when I drank, boy, it helped me socialize. And, um, and it became my crutch. Luckily, I was able to get into law school. And I, I went to Willamette University in Salem, Oregon for law school my first year. And the whole idea behind going to, everyone looked at me like I was crazy. Why are you going to law school in Oregon? And I'm like, well, you know, I think it's a unique opportunity, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, Ron, I, my friends were starting to really share with me that they thought I had a drinking problem and I just didn't want to hear it. And I was tired of hearing it. And I also wanted to come out. I hadn't come out as gay yet. I'd gone all through college just sort of suffering and repressing my, my true sexual orientation. And I thought, well, maybe if I went to Oregon, you know, it would change all that. In AA, we call that a geographic cure, that we think we're going to cure ourselves by moving someplace. So I went to I went to Salem, Oregon, and nothing really changed. And I I escalated into what I call alcoholic drinking there. Uh, and that I I I was fortunate in that that my drinking. I was able to continue to, to achieve some success. I managed to get out of law school and to pass the bar and to practice law. And I started a law practice in 1992 with a buddy of mine, and it became a very successful law practice. But by March of 1998, 
Um, I lost everything. I lost my house. I lost my car. I lost my law practice. And, you know, one of my people that I worked with with my law practice in Arlington, you know, before I left, he, he was told a friend of mine, he says, you know, if you don't, if you're not, you've not seen Tate lately, don't, don't worry about it. You're not missing much. He's nothing but a drunk. So that's kind of what came of it. I had reached a progression in my drinking uh, by about 1998 that, that to where all I wanted to do was drink. Uh, I couldn't do anything else. So I crashed and burned and I literally found myself back at my parents' house living after having built a law practice and all of that. I'd lost it and I was living with my parents. And um, so anyway, uh, it was it was when I reached that point that I uh, I had a moment in when I was drunk in my parents' garage where I thought I can't live with alcohol and I can't live without it. So I don't know what to do. And and uh, I went and I grabbed 20 pills of Valium. And I was going to take it with the last bit of Johnny Walker Black I had that I was drinking. And then something popped in my head. I remember a buddy of mine who was a doctor. His name was AJ. And he said, there's this place I'd like for you to go, Tate. And he says, it's called Hazelton. It's in Minnesota. I researched it. and I think they're the best in the business where you go. And I rejected it at the time. That had been about a year or so ago. And something made me decide to pick up the phone and call them instead of take those 20 Valium that I had in my hand. And um, that led me to Hazleton where I started the road to recovery. So, so very interesting. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the question that I, that I have uh, as I'm hearing this uh, between the alcoholism, the struggles you had from a uh, sexual identity standpoint, <clears throat> I'm always interested in the concept of prevention. Yeah. Is there anything, if your parents were more sophisticated or more caring uh, uh, or more alert to what was going on, is there anything that, that could have been done or do you feel that... Um, at least with with the drinking that that you had to to go downhill on your own. I, I think nowadays it's probably easier to come out. Uh, although there's yeah. there are some states that I think are making it more difficult. But I I think they're uh, uh, you know that I, I and I'm sure there are some families where it's more difficult. But I'm just wondering. You know, thinking in terms of some of my listeners who may be raising kids, uh, you know, is there anything that anybody could have done either on their own or as parents that, that you might might be able to advise? Well, there, there I, I look back at this when when I came out to my mom and, and then later, I, I didn't come out to my father because I thought that he would hate me if he knew I was gay. That's what I thought. And I didn't come out to my father until not much before he passed away. But 
when when I came out to my mom, it was much earlier. And when I came out to my mom, I remember my mom, she said, well, your dad and I sort of talked about this when you were in high school. Now, when I was in high school, I, I had a couple of buddies. I had one buddy that was gay, that well, he wasn't out, but he, 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 he was effeminate acting. So not, and, and just to disabuse any stereotype, not all gay folks are effeminate acting, not all gay men are effeminate acting, but this particular friend was. And uh, dad was very uncomfortable about me hanging out with him because he thought he was gay. And, and because I hung out with him, his name was Tony, because I hung out with him, my parents were concerned, my dad was concerned that I might be gay, but he never brought it up to me. And I think, I think if, if, if parents are aware, for me, I think that if, if during high school, my parents were aware that that I that I was gay or I might be gay, it would have been awesome to have to have had them start the conversation because I wasn't. I was too afraid mm. as their son, as a 15-year-old, to start that conversation with. And and uh, a lot of times kids that's the parents start a conversation and maybe the kid doesn't want to have it with them. But it's nice to know that you can. So you know, I think if like my mom and dad had maybe engaged that conversation with me when I was 15 or 16 and, and, and had assured me that they, regardless of what I said, they were going to love me. Um, I got to be honest, Ron, that sure would have made a whole lot of things a lot easier. Well, I don't fault my parents for it at all. I think they probably did the best they knew how to do. You know, they were raised in small town South and, and you know, and, and you just didn't talk about such things, you know, and but but I can tell you now to any parent listening to this, that perhaps you have a son or a daughter that. You know, I think it's OK to invite that conversation with your child. Um but, but assure them you're going to love them regardless of what the response is going to be. Because I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty well think if I'd have had that conversation with my parents at 15 or 16, and I knew that they were going to love me no matter what, who knows how things would have been different. But uh, I feel like it would have made a huge, it would have lifted a huge burden off me. Let me put it that way. Well, that uh, that's really powerful advice. And I'm, sure that there are uh, our parents out there that that will gain from having heard it from you and uh again given your history of success it's uh it's powerful um it's been so interesting that uh got a lot more questions than i have time but i uh want to get into uh in, in the few minutes remaining your book is called Sunday Dinner, Moonshine, and Men. Um, I think you told us about the Sunday dinner. Uh, I guess maybe the men is uh, has been covered. 
<laughs> that's the gay part you're right <laughs> what where's moonshine come in i'll tell you how moonshine comes into this and is 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 like i like i shared earlier i came from a um you know a, a small southern town and, and my 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 dad's grandmother on the barkley side of the family my dad's grandmother uh she was a moonshine she had three stills. The Barclay land, land ran between Third and Fifth Creek in Ardell County, North Carolina, back in the old days, generations ago. So, in my what would be my great great grandmother, she ran three stills. She was a moonshiner during Prohibition, and she's kept making corn liquor even after Prohibition because people just liked it and liked her corn liquor. And she was a proud, fierce woman. And um, and the moonshine came from from the fact that our family history began, you know, she was famous throughout the area as being a moonshiner. And she was the only female moonshiner there. And, um, and she was a tough woman. Uh, she, she did things her own way in, in, including she had a, in the 1920s, she had a, uh, a, a friend, a lover that was an African-American man. That was that was strictly forbidden. We're talking about North Carolina and the days of the Ku Klux Klan, and and she was so proudly fierce. She just had that relationship anyway. Well, sadly, that man eventually got lynched because of that. That's, you know, a mixed race relationship was was not to be had in those days. Um, but she continued to to hold her head proud despite that, and. The moonshine not only covers the fact that we actually are a family of moonshiners or came from that, but sadly, you know, my, my, my Paul Barkley, my dad, myself, we were all active practicing alcoholics. And um, my dad died an active alcoholic and um, so did my, my Paul. Uh, I did inner recovery. So the moonshine sort of covers that generational alcoholism that's run through our family over the years. Interesting. Can't uh, can't wait to read the book. Uh, when it becomes available, where will we be able to find it? You bet. Listen, thank you for that. And, and, and a lot of a lot of the discussion about getting sober and recovery is is in the book, which I'm most proud of. The resiliency that can be afforded by a good recovery program. But be. the book can be found certainly at Amazon. Any book, Sunday dinners, moonshine, and men. You can go to my website, takebarkley.com, and uh, it will direct you to where to find the book. The book will be published on September 25th, and uh, it'll be out. We're hopeful, we're hopeful that it will be at most independent bookstores by then as well, And um, uh, but it can easily be found on Amazon. Great. And what about uh, uh, finding you in general? It's, I mean, you're such an interesting guy. Uh, you mentioned a website. Are you on social media? Are you, and and uh, uh, do you do uh, you know stuff public service wise or otherwise or or available for speaking or or what? Uh, how, how again? You're we've got a little bit of a picture of of you, and I know that some people will want to follow up more. You bet. You know, in addition to my website, which is at tapebarkley.com, I'm on LinkedIn, Michael Tate Barkley on LinkedIn. And I'm also on Instagram, Tate Barkley on Instagram. 
and I'm not active on Facebook, but I am, uh, I am there on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, you can find me at Tate Barkley, uh, com as well. Uh, so one of the things that I do as I share on, on, on the website is, is that I am a speaker and uh, I do keynote and, uh, breakout sessions. And really concerning the, the resiliency is the topic that I talk about, recovery. Two principal tools in my life that I think that, are, that have, have done served me well to keep me a sober, happy, well-adjusted gay man over, over these years. And that's being honest, rigorous honesty and being of service to others. I fundamentally believe if we're honest with ourselves about who we are, accept ourselves, and that we dedicate our life to being of service to others, you can, you can lay your head down every night uh, and go to sleep and you can wake up in a good place and uh, service to others and honesty towards others, I think is, is really critical. I talk a lot about those in my speeches and workshops and then some other tools that I've developed over the years to help be more honest in a safe way and to help be of service to others. Well, it's wonderful advice. And this has been a fascinating discussion uh, I'm sure that uh, my listeners will be as fascinated as I am and also be looking forward to the, the book. Uh, uh, as I said, we ran out of time before ran out of questions, so we may have to do this again. But in the meantime, is there any real major point that I should have asked you about but didn't or anything else that uh, we can't close without knowing about you? But I, I'll tell you what, I, I'll say this. I, I think we covered a lot, but I, but I will say this. If, if, if you're someone that, and you feel like that you have a problem with alcohol and you feel like you have uh, trouble with addiction, then reach out. There is help. There is Alcoholics Anonymous. There is recovery organizations everywhere. Don't be afraid. You're not alone. There is help. There is a way out of the hell of addiction and just ask for the help. And because um, the only person that, that can, can say, please help me is you, your wife or your husband and your mom, your dad, your sisters and your brothers can't help you until you want the help. So if you're in that place, there is help out there. So so reach out and get it. Again, wonderful advice. And I would certainly add to it if there's any doubt um, it doesn't get any easier on you if you, if you delay asking for help. So it's, uh, you know, just, again, wonderful advice. It's good that there are people like you who can spread the word. And uh, again, I appreciate your sharing your story and so much terrific advice with my listeners. Yeah. And if you're, and if you're all concerned, leave me a note on takebarkley.com. If, if you're, if you're in that place and, and we'll, we'll try to, Okay. Respond back. Okay. All the information will be in the show notes, including um, with your Southern drawl. Uh, it, some people may get it as Ted Barkley. I, it's Tate, T A. It's Tate Barkley. Yes, sir. And, it's Tate. Uh, but again, it'll all be available in the show notes. And, uh, uh, you know, it, we'll look forward to seeing the book and thank you for sharing so much and that brings to close another episode of rejuvenating with dr ron kaiser special guest tate barkley who has shared so much about 
both his personal life and provided guidance to those who may be in a position to turn their lives around as, as he did. And on that note, we're going to close the show, but I hope that you will listen to it again, tell your friends about it, particularly if need, they need help in uh, the area of addictions. Um, make sure that you rate and review the podcast and be back next week when we'll have another interesting guest on a different topic to help us become increasingly better versions of ourselves. On that note, let's everybody stay positive, stay safe, and have yourselves a real good week.